Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We bring on Brant Berglund, who is a youth hockey coach in the Boston area, but also has worked in the video editing world for a long time. He was a video coach for Boston University, then went on to be the video coach with the Boston Bruins, and now he works for a company called Exos, which is probably the leading video editing software that is used by most NHL, college, and even junior teams today. So we had a great talk about technology and hockey, great talk about youth hockey, but before we do get to Brant, I am really excited to bring on the talent of the podcast here right now because uh, my friend Jeffrey's a little heated right now. He's going through a little Twitter war today. So uh, Jeff, blood, uh, you know, a little, blood flowing a little bit more today. How, how you doing, buddy? The blood is flowing all over this bottom line. It's a big <laughs> pot. Let me tell you, I'm getting diesel again. Yeah, I am real, real hyped up right now. Um, you know, as I've seen it, it's, there's a pretty large problem going on in St. Louis. And you and I have talked about this on the podcast before. It's going on in other places as well, where the elite players, quote unquote, you know, I hate saying that about kids, but the elite players who are trying to move on to juniors from 15 to 18 years old, maybe even 14. Um, you know, in St. Louis, they want to play high school hockey. I totally understand it. I played when I was a freshman, only one year. It's the only year I played. The rest of the years, I did not play for my high school because it made no sense for my goals. I wanted to play juniors, so it literally made no sense. Um, they want to play. They want to you know, impress their friends in the stands. They want to be a big deal at school. They want to you know, score a goal for the babes in the stands. Totally get it. I loved it. I did it too. But the problem is here in St. Louis, these high school coaches, some of them forced our AAA players to make every practice, make every single game they can. If they're in town, you better be playing. I don't care if you had four games this weekend and it's a Monday, you don't get that day off like the rest of your AAA players. You got to come to our practice or you got to play in this preseason game or you got to do this or you got to do that. You know, I just think that it's so selfish. And yes, this is a very hot button topic because it's not just a simple answer. I mean, I think it needs to be it needs to be the whole system needs to be thrown out and we need to start over and figure it out. But the system, my tweet was today that today, right now in the system that we are currently using, if you're a high school coach and you care about these elite quote unquote, triple a players, whose goals are to play at the next level, why are you forcing them to come to practice when they've already had three practices in the week? If you care about that kid. So from the coach's standpoint, I understand what they're saying. Hey, you know, it's not fair to the other kids on the team. You know, you can only come to the games. It's not fair to them, blah, blah, blah. Totally understand it. And I agree. I don't think they should be allowed to play. I think you should only be allowed to be on one team. But you want them to play. That's the realistic point of this. The coaches want those AAA players because it helps them win. So 
then they're going to force them, you know, they're, oh, come to, you know, I'll work with you. I'll work with you. I'll allow this, allow that. Boom. What happens? First week, we got a preseason high school tournament. Our team's going to the USHL, um, you know, big tournament this weekend where every college, every NHL, all these scouts are there watching these kids. And one of the best players in the country for his age, who's on my team, is literally like almost in tears because he's got his high school coach ripping him a new and he, you know, we're saying, you know, you got to be prepared. This is a huge weekend for you, which he understands. And his goal is to play juniors. And his high school coach is just laying into him, like, you need to pray before you go home and think about this and decide what you want to do. I just think it's not caring about the kids, and it really pisses me off. And I couldn't bite my tongue any longer. I had to say something. I like it. I, I, I just, yes, I know the system's flawed, but today this is where we're at in the system. The AAA players are allowed to play. You are recruiting them. You want them to play. Let's care about that specific individual player's best interest. All right, if he's the backup goalie on AAA, he didn't play all weekend, and you got a game on Monday or Tuesday, okay, that makes sense. Let him play. But if he played all four games, and now you want him to play the next day when he desperately needs rest because he's got big games the next weekend, like you don't care about that kid. You're a liar. You care about your win-losses for high school. Like it, it, it I don't, I cannot accept that. I don't understand it. It's amateur sports. We should be about in the best interest for the kids. So what's the happy medium? I think, and again, I understand it's, it's hard. I think you either need to go to a split season, which, you know, whatever, you know, maybe it's like high school the first month of the season and then AAA for four or five months and then high school at the end of the season. I don't know. Or what I personally think they should go to is you choose one or the other. You're only allowed on one roster. Yeah, it's a tough decision, but we're going to have to make decisions in our lives sooner or later. You know what I mean? Because then for the high school players, the kids who are on the bubble, who are the third or fourth liner, now they get to play more in high school. Now they get to play in the power play. So now they're actually getting better. So who knows what they could develop and grow into? Whereas that AAA player, he gets to come in. He does. He, I think he shouldn't be practicing and he comes in the games and he gets all the PP time. You know what I mean? So I think that makes way more sense from a developmental standpoint for both levels, high school and AAA. And just for the people who are listening who aren't from St. Louis, high school hockey in AAA is not even remotely comparable to AAA level. Like, I don't even know. High school level is probably like A2, B1, like for most teams. There's a couple good teams. For the most part, it is not good hockey for these kids whose goal is to move on and play juniors and actually like really like take hockey seriously. There's nothing wrong with being a house league player, with a B player, with an A2 player, being a high school player. Nothing wrong with it. I'm talking about the best interests for the quote unquote elite kids in our city. And I think we as coaches, adults, mentors, ex-pros, experts, whoever, we need to think about what's going to help them attain their goals because they're kids they don't know. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this because, again, it, it's a tough topic because there's so many different variables, right? Like So many. Like what is like in Minnesota, which everybody always comes to when it comes to the, the high school hockey conversation versus St. Louis versus New York versus Chicago versus Boston. You know, I mean, it's there's so many different it's just different in, in those areas. But let me ask you this, because let's say a U16 team, um, I'll make you think here. You're, you coach a U16 team, okay? And realistic, I do. realistically, how many of the kids 
not your team, because I don't want to put you on the spot like that, but realistically on a U16, let's call it, uh, you know, a top 50 My Hockey Rankings um, team. So good teams, right? But just for the sake of argument here, how many of those kids on a top U16 team are going to play junior hockey or are good enough to play junior hockey? Define junior hockey. <laughs> so, like NHL, NHL, USHL, like good, good junior hockey. BCHL. I mean, yeah. uh, there, there, there's probably six leagues, yeah. five leagues that are good. So let's right? just say good junior hockey. think is good. But again, good is a relative term. What if this kid's goal is to play D3 because this is his first year playing AAA at 16? Well, so if like, you're, let's just I mean, you're going to have to play good juniors to play Division 3 too. So. Right. No, 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 I know, I know, I know. But like maybe they go to the NCDC. You didn't involve that league in your Yeah, NA. I mean they have D1, D2, yeah, D3 yeah, guys. You know what I mean. Yeah. All right, we'll say juniors. Honestly, obviously that's a, that's a super tough question. Depends on where you are. Could say five – Six. I mean, we, we have pretty good players here in St. Louis. We have a lot of guys move on to juniors, but he, that's a great question. But here is my point. If we're helping facilitate what I believe and what a lot of believe, people believe to be the, the better path for development, and they're working out three to four times a week, they're able to do skill sessions and skill rooms off the ice before or after practice and getting their three AAA practices on a, in a week and playing their two to four games on the weekend. If they're only doing that, they're going to be way better at the end of their AAA quote unquote career, whether that's at 16, 17 or 18, than if they're spreading themselves super thin and by December, they're completely gassed out. That's totally what I saw. It's what all the coaches we see. They're completely fried. They're not working out. They're not doing injury prevention. They're, they don't have a social life because they're running between rinks left and right. They're in rinks all day, every day. Like It just doesn't make sense to do both for me, whether you're the last player on the team or the first player on the team in terms of how good you are on that AAA team. Sure. Yeah. So like define, define an ideal week. Like, let's say you want to have a happy medium and the kids could do both. Like what's, what's an ideal week? How many times on the, are they on the ice? Let's kids say you do both. Well, I mean, ideally I do not want them to do both. I want them to choose. <laughs> do you want to, I, I mean, if we're talking about ideally, I want these kids to choose and it sucks, but you know, they're going to have to make choices. Do you want to try and play junior hockey and go for a scholarship and try and play college hockey or do you want to have fun with it and, you know, maybe see what happens, kind of roll the dice a little bit because here in St. Louis, like I said, AAA hockey is literally, they're not even in the same ballpark. Like it's crazy. The difference between the level of AAA and high school. Well, I think that's so, the same everywhere. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't Except know. For possibly I can, Minnesota. Right. I can only speak about St. Louis, like knowing, knowing it. Um, so if, if you're, if you, want to play high school, that's fine. Play high school, and then you can play double-A club too if you want. Go ahead. But if your goal, if you're going to sit in front of me and tell me you want to play junior hockey, I'm going to tell you that I believe that playing triple-A and working out three to four times a week from 14 years old up is what will give you the best chance to put yourself into that situation. And is it not something we want to do to teach these kids? If there's something you want to do in life, you got to put in the work. Nobody's giving it to you. Everything is earned, not given. So isn't that a great life lesson 
as opposed to like, let's keep everyone happy. Like, you know, you, you've got, you're going to play for both teams. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to spread yourself thin. The amount of people that come up to me when I'm at a restaurant or at a bar are like, Hey Vex, good to see you. You know, and I ask them what they're doing, wherever, man, I wish I would have listened to you. I wish I would have been in the gym more. I wish I would have been more dedicated. And I'm like, you know, it's unbelievable. And that's my biggest thing. I don't want these kids to have regrets. And obviously you're going to be missing out on one or the other. But if I'm talking about the elite kids, the kids who really want it and maybe have a shot, I think that they should be deciding and doing one or the other personally. And I wholeheartedly believe it. And I'll never back down from that. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear to me. Mike Boyle, fill up the empty buckets. You're skating three times a week plus games on the weekend. You're getting enough hockey. Plus, we got skill sessions for AAA Blues, where I coach now, in a skill room. On top of that, you're getting enough skill. You're getting enough ice. You're getting enough skating. What are you missing? Strength, injury prevention, rest, recovery. That's what you're missing. If, if high school was as good as AAA, okay, now let's have the conversation. Well, maybe we do two, high, two AAA practices a week and one with your own respective high school. But it's not like... There's varsity players that literally can't skate in St. Louis. They can't skate. And I'm not making fun of the kids. Again, I'm just trying to help these kids whose goal is to move on. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an argument to be said that you're not getting better in most not places your, in, in a high school you're practice, for sure. Yeah, and that's that's a, a tough part of it, too. Um, it's it's a tough debate, man. Like it is. It's a it's a tough debate because the way that I mean, the way that a lot of AAA hockey is. I mean, you can throw a dagger at them too and say, should, "Because I mean, how many games are you guys going to play this year?" Wait, wait, hey, wait. <laughs> believe me, I've spoke up about that too. I also believe these kids should be playing forty games a year. Yeah, I don't think you should be playing sixty. No effing way. For multiple reasons. One, cost on the families. Number one overall way too much money. It's disgusting. It's ridiculous. Let's stop that. We could have these big weekends that are huge super tournaments where all the scouts will go because all the teams will go to those. And then they can scout the kids over the course of that weekend. Maybe you have five games over six days a week or something, you know, four games over six days. So all the scouts can stay there for a week and watch every team they want to watch. And then you do that once a month or once every two months, instead of playing four games here then the next weekend four games just always four games like it's too much money and the kids you know games are great but like you're going to get even better by good quality practices i think too uh, and working out and learning about your body and doing things like that i mean uh, yeah just my opinion I'm an idiot, though. What do I know? Just a doctor. <laughs> what do I know? I'm just a doctor. <laughs> just a doctor. Happy Gilmore. Thank you very much. I, I will say this caveat, though, because, you know, I always try and see both sides. And I think with this with this argument, it just makes the most sense to just you play one or the other. I really, truly believe that that's the best way to go. Um, we did have a couple kids on our team, two kids on my U18 team last year that played on the fourth line for us in AAA. The way that we coached with Mike Barrett, unbelievable guy here in St. Louis, he rolled four lines for the most part, almost the whole season, which I totally respect. And I love that with our fourth line players, obviously, you know, they're not usually playing power play. 
Um, so they would go to high school and they would get to play a ton. They would get to play power play. I would advise them when they went to high school, Hey, I'd rather you hold on to the puck longer. I want you cause you know, usually a fourth line guy is more of a throw it away guy, kind of dump it, that kind of thing. So I was like, Hey, when you go to high school, I want you to hold on that puck longer. I want you to really focus on trying to beat guys one-on-one because for me as the AAA coach, I don't really care if you lose the puck in AAA, but you're making yourself better. You're learning to develop a panic point, stuff like that, working on your skills. For him, totally made sense. But still, by the end of the year, absolutely fried, absolutely burned out. Neither one of those kids came to the optional workouts, not, you know, so kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know what I mean? I do. That's why it's such a tough debate. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. What are I your mean, thoughts? Well, I just think it, it, there. I don't think there is one right way to do it. If you had to choose, gun to your head, go. If if I had to choose in terms of what, like what to do for a for a sixteen U player who wants to put looks at it says coach, my goal is to play juniors. I want to play juniors. What do you say to him? He wants to play AAA. He wants to play high school. What, what what's what's best for him? Yeah, I think playing AAA would be best for that kid for sure. I mean, because you're going to be challenged, you're going to be playing, uh, you're going to be challenged in practice and in games, and most importantly in practice, um, where you're going to be going against better players and you're going to have to do things at a higher pace. I, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think you can argue that. <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, it's, that's me. That's not, like you said, the, the fourth line guy in the way that most coaches coach AAA now, fourth line guys don't play very much. You know, it's great that your coach does that. So if I'm that kid, I'm like, no, like this is dumb. Like I want to go play high school because I'm actually going to develop more playing high school hockey because I'm going to touch the puck. I'm going to be more confident. I'm actually going to freaking play. So like it, it's like you said. So is it maybe better for that kid to just play high school in AA and take the energy craziness or just double a or central states and then work out super hard. Like if, the, if his goal is to actually make, yeah, junior. no, I think instead that's... of playing hockey 10 times a week, being <laughs> dead tired, having no social life and not being able to work out and train. And I'm not saying work out like a bodybuilder. Like that's not what I'm talking about. And if you're working out the correct way, you shouldn't be getting super tired in season. Anyways, I believe you should be working on strength. You're getting everything else. Fill up the empty bucket, Mike Boyle, what's up. But you know, like it, go about it that way versus, you know, just hockey all the time. Then you open yourself up to overuse injuries. You know, I don't, I don't know. It is, it's such a hard, such a hard topic. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the easiest thing, but it's not an easy thing at all is to go by kid by kid basis, but that's impossible to do because there's 20 kids on a team at that age. So how do you pick and choose and how do you let people slide and get away with certain things and others not? And, you know, there's also, lessons to learn. And this is where you go back to the high school coaches. Like they're trying to teach discipline. They're trying to teach, you know, all these things, commitment, commitment. If, if I'm letting this guy just come to games, like what's that say to everybody else? Right. So they can be thinking about that too. So totally. uh, you totally. know, it's, it's a tough debate. It's a great debate. Uh, I think the best thing is, is to do it by a kid by kid basis for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, like you're not getting much better in high school practices in most parts of the country. So if it's about becoming a better hockey player, you know, I think probably AAA is the place to be and just playing AAA for the most part. It's not for everybody, but at the same time to be able to develop as a hockey player, you have to be able to have fun. 
And doing that and playing high school hockey is fun for the kids. I mean, I coached a high school hockey team that won the state championship last year. Thank you very much. And it was, you know, like we had kids on that team that probably shouldn't have played high school hockey. Like what we're talking about, they're going to be division one hockey players at some point. Um, so did they necessarily get better during that? No, but they had an unbelievable experience. They won a championship for their town. So it's a lot, this is a a conversation that's going around in circles and circles and circles that doesn't have a finite answer to it because there's so many different variables, but just being able to kind of talk it out almost like brain dump between the two of us right now, I think is, I don't know, it's putting things into perspective for me a little bit anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just so hard. And I think by not, not at least trying to talk about let's come up with a better way we're doing a disservice to the kids and that's what my whole thing on twitter today was about that just kind of blew up on on twitter is that like we're doing a disservice by not trying to make the system better we're not helping some of these kids to the best of our abilities and for me my thing has always been no regrets. I don't want to look back when I was a player. I didn't want to look back and say, well, I could have done this. I can't believe I didn't do this. I didn't try this. I didn't work harder. I was always like, no matter what, I don't want to have regrets. You know, obviously you can look back and say, well, I could have done something smarter, but it like wasn't for a lack of effort or lack of like trying or, or anything like that. And I hate, or I hate being a coach and looking at a kid knowing that, like, all right, the reason that you might not be able to play juniors is because you are going to get injured. You get injured all the time. You're weak. You're tired. You need to get stronger and faster. Okay, so how do we do that? Let's get you in the effing weight room, and you gain confidence and have fun in there, too. So that makes more sense to me than that kid playing hockey 200,000 times a week. <laughs> it's a lot of times a week. It's a lot of times a week, man. <laughs> I don't know. I just get sick over this. (laughs) All right. Well, that's a good way to transition to our actual podcast that we, uh, that we have (laughs) brand. And, uh, this was a great conversation, man. I mean, Brant's a sharp guy. Um, he's been around for a long time. He's got kids going through youth hockey, but he's also worked at the higher levels too. And he gets a chance to go around and, um, with the video software system that he has and the video editing, like he's seen a lot of different teams at the highest levels as well. So getting his perspective on the higher level stuff and how you kind of incorporate technology and hockey and what's the best practices in doing that but also kind of the same token like how you do that at the younger levels too it was uh, it was a really cool conversation for sure yeah i would agree i mean I, i've known brand for a number of years now he was with boston when i was with them so um awesome guy super intelligent obviously and um love his twitter like he's always putting things out on twitter he's always trying to think outside the box trying to perfect you know, how I wouldn't say perfect, but trying to find new ways that make more sense, uh, to to help these kids get better at hockey. And, and I definitely like the way his brain works. Super nice guy. Yeah, for sure. I loved our conversation on, um, positionless hockey too. Yeah, it's, uh, it is like you hear people talking about playing positionless hockey. Like you can't just say play positionless hockey. You have to describe what that means, yep. you know, because it, it can't, it can be taken different ways if you don't explain the, the why and the how and, and how to do it. So, um, it was a really good back and forth for sure. And, uh, I think it'll put, uh, put that into perspective for a lot of people that kind of heard it, but don't necessarily maybe know what it, what it is. Yeah. I mean, does anyone know what it is? I mean, I I think it's just now like kind of been coming of age the last few years and trying to figure out how to make that work and, and how, 
you know, I think it's cool that he's doing it with, with younger kids because it'll be very interesting to see where they're at in 10 years. Like, you know, he's coaching eight, nine, 10 year olds, whatever it is. All right. What they've been taught that at eight, nine, 10 to read and react more than like robotic. All right, sweet. Well, where are they going to be in 10 years? That'll be very interesting to see. I would love, I can't wait, you know, hopefully, you know, we're still doing this podcast in 10 years. Um, <laughs> you know, we can look back on episode 75 or whatever we're on now and be like, Hey, remember when we talked about that? Like now everyone's playing positionless now there's robots on the ice like what's going to be happening who knows (laughs) (laughs) you're such a tool (laughs) robots are taking over uh yeah i think we're actually at episode 71 maybe this is going to be okay i just put i just put up the other one i think it was 70 with mark uh, yeah. By the way, I got so many messages about our conversation with Mark Wick, um, yeah, our mental health conversation. I thought that was so cool, so cool of Mark to to be vulnerable and share his story, and and I think it's going to have a huge impact on on a ton of people. So thanks to everybody that's kind of messaged us and and uh, had appreciation for that episode. And and you should message Mark, and and uh, he's he's a great speaker, and and uh, it was really cool to hear his perspective on mental health. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. That was a great conversation. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So um, with that, again, we just want to thank everybody for for tuning in and and uh, you know sharing us some feedback with uh, what you like, what you don't like by messaging us not messaging us on social media, uh, by people emailing me. I get a you know we have thousands of people that listen to the podcast now each episode, and uh, that's really really cool. And we really really appreciate everybody that um, that listens and. We did this to, to hopefully have a positive impact on the hockey world. And just if you can, um, share, share our episodes with, with your networks. Uh, if you think that what we're doing is, is going to add a little sanity into the insanity, even like we talked about at the beginning of this intro, um, you know, we want to impact as many people as we can. We want to grow the game as best as we can. And uh, we just want to help people that, uh, you know, that want to be a little educated, a little inspired on the greatest game in the planet, like we talk about at the beginning of the episode. So thank you thank you thank you we're extremely grateful for everybody that listens and uh we can't wait to continue doing this thing we got some fun stuff ahead we got some fun conversations coming up the nhl season's coming up too so really excited about that it'll give us some more to talk about but um thank you to everybody and uh with that shall we head it over to brant what do you say let's do it all right without further ado let's bring on over to brant Berglund. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, all the way from Beantown, Boston, Massachusetts, Brant Berglund. Brant, how are we doing today? Fantastic. How are you guys? Good, good. Well, you got an interesting story. You just kind of got it on the, well, let's call it the pre-show, where uh, you actually grew up as the son of a coach, and your dad coached at uh, Northeastern, and he coached at BU, so we can probably say that you're a little bit of a rink rat growing up. Uh, but yeah, just wanted to kind of ask you growing up how you fell in love with the game and how formative those years were to you know you being so involved in hockey today. Yeah, I mean, my dad was a pretty good college hockey player and then played a little pro uh, as a goalie in uh, the WHA and the various New England minor hockey leagues that were around and then uh, ended up becoming a goalie coach and an assistant coach at Northeastern. So I got to run around uh, Matthews Arena every day after school and skate, which is, you know, I don't know if you could really ask for a better hockey childhood. That place is a museum. Um, You know, and those teams were pretty legendary as well. So I got to go through all the Beanpot Dynasty years, the first Beanpots, they, I think they won one in the 70s or early 80s, but uh, I got to live through that um, when Northeastern really started to um, 
kind of dominating the bean pot uh, in that decade. Um, and then he moved over to BU in the 90s, and I got to be around, or late 80s, I should say. I got to be around Jack Parker and the whole dynasty there uh, with, you know, Mike Sullivan and, and Sean McEachern and, and Keith Kachuk and Tony Amati. I mean, just two unbelievable places to be able to grow up. And then uh, ended up, uh, you know, I played growing up, and I was the big slow kid. I guess I wasn't that slow, but I was big. And uh, and it, it wasn't going to work out. I ended up playing a year of prep school after high school at Northfield Mount Hermon, and I played with some unbelievable players there, guys that went on to play Division One, Brian Pothier and uh, – and Mike Josephowitz and Matt Sanders and some pretty good players, and I was out of place. And at that point, uh, my dad was moving on from BU, and they had a position available as a uh, team manager. And it was like, well, do I try to walk on somewhere and just get beat up every year, every day for four years and maybe play a game or two uh, as Mercy Games? You know, the exhibition season against Concordia and some of the Canadian schools, I'll, I'll be able to get on the ice, but that'll be it. Or do I try to go to BU and 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 do something there because I love it so much. And that's what I did. And I did anything that Jack asked. You know, I was doing video. I was doing I was doing stats. I was loading the bus. I was helping out on the equipment side. I was on the bench during games, grabbing sticks, whatever it took. Uh, but then they bought an editing system. And that kind of parlayed into my career. So I've just been around the game my whole life. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it was always there. And I did a lot of other things around it. I don't think I really fell in love with the game until later on in life, which is funny because it was just a part of my life, and maybe that's why it took a while to fall in love with it. Yeah, that's that is really interesting, and you now are you know steeped in the video business and the video editing business with what you do at Exos, and I wanted to ask you because I feel like the best education I ever got in terms of the game of hockey is when I really dedicated myself to watching video as a coach and really learning the ins and outs of uh, of the game from a hockey development standpoint individually, but also from like a concepts and system standpoint too. Um, so when you became the video coach at BU, was that kind of like an eye-opener into you know, almost like a Ph.D. in hockey and, and learning about the different ways of, of like how the game works? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think being around Jack and the way he saw the game, um, you know, and even Mike Davis and Perte Hassanen and Kenny Roush and Brian DeRocher, all those guys, like being around them with the years they have. I always tell video coaches the best gift you have are the coaches you get to work with, Right. Totally. Listen, listen to them, interact with them when you feel like you can ask them questions, you know, and without question for me, getting that education of working with those guys and learning how to watch the game with it, 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 it completely increased my hockey knowledge, uh, from an analytical standpoint for sure. I mean, I don't know how it wouldn't. Um, and like you said, it's great for self-education, but then there's the other side of it too, how do you take that and work with players, right? And you can't just – whatever you see on video is not necessarily what you need to show the players, right? It's just, <laughs> it's, that's the other thing I learned was watching coaches, when they start to get nervous, you, the first thing they do is what, Topher, you know? They continue to they talk. They video. Yeah, continue right. and continue and continue and continue for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so yeah, working with those guys, and then in 2001, I, I get hired, I think it was 2002, I get hired mid-season 
from a place where I was very comfortable. So I worked at BU as a student and then actually got hired there. Good job security tip for everybody. If you do something and no one else knows how to do it, they have to hire you. It's wonderful. Uh, and that's what happened at BU. Jack was like, well, I don't know who else is going to run this stuff. And uh, I really had limited career aspirations. I just knew I loved hockey and I knew what I loved what I did there. And uh, so um, he hired me for a year. But halfway through that year, the Bruins needed a video coach and I got hired midseason. So halfway through the year, you want to talk about education of uh, a sports uh, profession that's probably the best you could get because it was sink or swim at that point. Um, I got to work with Robbie Fatorik, who was, I think, ahead of his time in terms of the way he saw the game offensively, um, but was already in a tough spot, uh, I guess, performance-wise, right? The team wasn't doing very well, and he was halfway through a year. Here he gets this greenhorn video coach to just add to his problems, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I could tell you right now, all the hockey knowledge in the world doesn't prepare you for the NHL season. When you get dumped into it like that, it's insane, the pace of which everything happens. You know, you, get, you go from having to put Jack's meeting together once or twice a week to having to do a meeting every day, right? And not only that, but travel on top of it. And that was, you know, that was just uh, ground-shaking for me to start to deal with. And it, and it certainly was, as you were asking about an education, that was really an education into, into uh, pro sports, um, so I got to work with him for half a year as well, and then was there until 2010. And that was all the, you know, <laughs> all the coaches I had exposure to there. Again, that's the greatest gift you could ever get is even if you don't get along with a coach, you still got to learn from them, and you still got to figure out what makes them tick and what got them to the NHL level because something did. And you better learn what it is because it could be beneficial to you too. Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you this, you know, as a coach, something that we preach a lot on this podcast is personal relationships and coaching. And um, we typically used video a lot of times individually to actually build those relationships. Like it was a time to kind of sit with guys one-on-one or maybe two-on-one, or if you're a forwards coach as a line, if you're a D coach as a D pair and, and really get to kind of like, you're doing video, which is important and you're teaching the game and stuff, but also you're, you're forming that relationship. Um, so it's almost like a, a double whammy when you're doing individual video. And I, and I talked to like guys playing, like there's not a, still not a ton of individual video that's being done even at the highest levels of hockey which I think is absolutely crazy um but how would you kind of like um maneuver and and talk about like different coaches and how they would build relationships through doing video because I think it's both are really really important yeah and I think there's two things right you can't make them hate video and the second they hate video you've lost its effect because anytime they get called in to get shown a clip they're already checked out right? Their eyes have already rolled. They've already looked at the other guys in the room. Right. Um, and, and that's where those, those one-on-one sessions or meetings have to be mutually beneficial. Right. And, and, and that, that's something that I learned. Um, and that certainly applies to coaching kids as well. Right. Because with the pros, it's their job. They got to listen The kids. They just check out the second you get angry at them, right? And and so you know I think um, when you talk about the one-on-one sessions, yeah, I think those are so beneficial. Jim Tortorella said one time uh, when he was at UNH, and I was talking with him about he was talking about film and practices. And at that point, that was probably six or seven years ago now. I said, "Wow, it's it's." I don't think a lot of people are doing that right now. And and uh, and he was 
talking about going even a step further and trying to, while they were recording the practices, log which drills were being run, which teams do now, but at the same time use the time on ice app we have to track which players are going in which rep. And I, I was like, wow, Jim, it's a lot of work. Is it really worth it? He goes, well, how else are you going to work with players that don't play in games if you don't have any footage with them to work with? That's so true. We did that at Cornell too. Like we would have student yeah. managers up, like actually logging practice, and it was a, it was great for the guys that wanted to get in the lineup but didn't have video, but wanted to get better. And so if sure. they were like killing penalties or you know certain one on one play or even five on five play and positioning and stuff, it was a great teaching tool for them. But it's also great for accountability too, because it's like, hey, the video doesn't lie right here. Like you didn't you didn't back check really hard. So that's why you're not yeah. in the lineup as well. well so it's I, interesting. I may, I may have in my time in Boston been sent up into the bleachers with a camera to record a practice, <laughs> uh, but the tape wasn't used. <laughs> you understand uh, what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I was between the lines, for, the lines are thin. <laughs> uh, the, the, big, the, big, the big brother approach was, uh, was in effect, uh, you know. So, um, but anyway, yeah, I think – I think the individual sessions are great. It's obviously harder to do at the NHL level. I, I always joke with pro and college players, because uh, coaches rather, because I deal with both of them. And you know, everybody says the, co- the pro coaches have it easy from the college side, and everybody from the, the college side says the pro, co- uh, vice versa, right? You know, they, they always think the grass is always greener. Pro coaches have uh, all they got to do is play games. College coaches, oh, they got nothing but time on their hands to work with players. It's like, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> no, no one understands on the college side <laughs> from the pro level that like you got to make sure that guys go to study hall, and then you got to go out and recruit, and you run the penalty kill, even though you're out of town for half the year, right? And uh, you know, the pro side, like you know, yeah, all they do is play games, but they got to travel, and you never see their family, and. Uh, you know, the pacing of the schedule is totally different. Both jobs are extremely hard, by the way. But, um, you know, I think the individual meetings are so critical to establish, like like you said, um, that relationship, provided that they are beneficial. And I think asking players what they thought, right? Totally. Why did you do that? What did you see here? That's how you have to do it. I was in so many meetings. And this is, I would say, early on in my time in Boston where it was just the riot act. I remember watching a... Uh, a younger player get brought in in between periods after he took a slap shot off the foot. Uh, slap shot drills him in the foot. He's hobbling around, and you know at that point the circus music starts. Right, like you can't we can't get a bounce, and the puck ends up in the back of the net. And the coach at the time brings him into the room and just lays into him, telling him how it wasn't good enough. I just remember thinking like that was not going to help the situation in any way because that guy was already the player. I'm not going to mention is already completely committed physically and mentally to his teammates, right? Like, if he was banged up there, I knew he was banged up. He wasn't milking it. He wasn't doing anything else. But, but just because you're frustrated as a coach doesn't mean you can jeopardize a player relationship by being too harsh on him in situations. I'm not saying you got to be light, and I'm not saying you can't hold him accountable, but situations like that, those are the one-on-one meetings that you could probably do without, right? Yeah, yeah well, I want to take it back to you saying, like, you – you don't need to make video enjoyable necessarily, but like, you know, from my own experience, I think back and we would do team video in Omaha when I first got there, um, that all three years. And usually the video was used as a, as an F you to, you know, everyone making mistakes, which, you know, I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that. Maybe you need to, uh, you know, 
throw in some some cookies every now and then while you're throwing daggers so that guys aren't uh you know we would be walking in the video room and we'd be scared guys would be like, oh god i just i hope that play's not on video i know it's gonna be on video and you're just so nervous and scared to go in there but my last year my assistant coach by the name of jimmy mcgrory and i truly believe this is why i was able to play college hockey while i was able to play 10 years professionally he brought me in and he's like hey you know what I want to start watching video one-on-one with you after every single game. Let's go over all your shifts and we'll just go over what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what we can do better, what we got to keep doing. It literally changed the way I looked at the game, changed the way that I'd come after a game and I'd think one thing, I'd watch the tape with him and be like, holy crap, I was not doing what I thought I was, you know, and and he made it fun for me. He'd show me the goals over and over. Like if I had a hit, he'd keep rewinding it and be like, yeah, like this is what we need, you know, and it, it got me excited into taking my career into my own hands and wanting to watch my shifts and wanting to get better because he kind of made it fun. So like, and I saw the benefits. I immediately be like, okay, in this video, I learned this. I'm going to go apply that right now in practice immediately after our video session. It helped me so much. So I think that's huge. What you just said, um, you know, with the guy who blocked the shot, like does bringing him in, in the middle of a game and telling him there after he's already made the mistake, is, is that going to make him want to watch video the next day, the next time that you want to bring him in? Will he be as, re- as receptive to what you're trying to teach him? I mean, obviously that's a hard thought to have in the moment, but you got to kind of step back and think about those things when, when you're trying to use video as a tool to help, I think. Yeah, well, the phrase, uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yep. I mean, that's, that's it 110%. And you look now at the ultimates in pro sports and how the ownership, the Golden State Warriors, right? The way that, the way that Steve Kerr coaches, um, uh, Steve Hansen from, uh, the all blacks, the way he coaches, right? Everything is about player ownership. If you come in and as an authoritative role, on these players and you kind of take it away from them and make them seem like I'm on board. You guys aren't on board all the time. Uh, The game's not about them. And once the game is not about players at any level, I don't care where it is. I don't think you can be successful. And that coach's approach to you was the absolute best way you can do it. Right? Like, look, we're going to talk about some stuff that's not fun, but we're also going to talk about what you do well and why you're a key part on this team. And for the most part, Jeff, if he showed you a clip, right? How many times did you go, yeah, but that's not what I was doing there? Most of the time, I bet when you played that clip for you, you would look at it and say, ah, my stick was on the wrong side. Yep. Right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, you guys know when you do something wrong. I mean, right. it's like I have nice toys, so I film a lot of the kids' games. And I, I go back and I watch to see how things go, and I want to see if we're getting practice to game transfer with some of these kids, right, and, like, how, how they're doing. And, and then we use it for fun. I show them the goals, and, and we have some laughs with it. But, you know, if I show my son something half the time, I can, or my daughter, I can say what happened there, and they can pick it up, right? And oh. it's amazing how the ownership is there already if you just let it happen, right? Like, maybe you don't realize what happens during the play, but that's a great thing about video. It doesn't lie. You can look at it, and right away, you already know what happened. It doesn't have to be drilled at you, right? Totally. Totally. Well, I, I love that you said, uh, I don't even know how, what the exact phrase was. They, they don't care. What did you say? They don't care about what you <laughs> they, know they until don't, they know Brent, about don't it. Tell them. Don't tell them. Don't tell them. Let's hear it. Go, go ahead. Try that. it. Kit, cat, <laughs> they, they don't. They don't 
care how much you know until they know how much you care. Boom, roasted. Ah, it's, <laughs> you got it. I wish I knew who said it. I, I, yeah. I attribute it appropriately. I forget who said it. It's so true, though. Like, it's so true. Like, I just remember my head coach, like, just – I was terrible with my stick pressure when I got to juniors and yep. yes, him being on me all the time made me so good with stick pressure. It's the reason I was able to penalty kill in college and pro in every league because I was just got really good with my stick and it was all from my video sessions in juniors. But sure. like looking back, you know, then I'd watch them with the assistant coach and instead of me just getting slammed, like, what are you effing doing here? Like, what are you, you're an idiot. Like those kind of things. It's kind of like, Hey Vex, like if your stick was in this lane right here, maybe you tip that puck, you go down on a breakaway, you score another goal. And I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. And like him telling me, like, I'm not yelling at you to yell at you. Like I'm, I'm telling you, I'm showing you this because it will literally get you more points. It will literally, you know, give you less minuses. It will literally help your team by you not getting scored on the penalty kill by having your stick in the correct spot. So like, let's, Let's figure out how we can make you remember this stuff. Well, there's and that stuff helped me more. Yeah, there's a couple of things that you said there that uh, it, it takes me back to our hockey development conference in Chicago when we listened to Connor Carrick talk. And the first one, because somebody actually asked him uh, this question, like, "How do you like to take video?" And he he said he likes almost like the seventy thirty rule. So seventy percent positive feedback, thirty percent constructive criticism. And uh, he's like, I want to know what I'm doing wrong so I can fix it, but also like it's it's really good to to know what I'm doing right. But the other thing that's really important is uh, just kind of like what you were talking about is how can you find a way as a coach, probably even in showing video, where you can relay your individual success to the overall team success as well. So I think back to um, like the Detroit Red Wings, like I heard when they really had it going in like the late nineties, the way that um, Scotty Bowman got the team to buy into playing defense is he would show them video clips of like, do you see this structure and how it created a turnover? And now we can go play offense. You know, like, do you see how this stick, let's just say, do you see how your stick pressure here caused a turnover? And now we were able to go in on a two on one, all that kind of stuff. So it's like finding a way. Cause everybody, like every player wants individual success. You know, we all kind of say, and everybody will say like, it's all about the team, all about the team, but let's not kid ourselves. Like we want to get to the next level. We want to have individual success as well. So as a coach, if you can find a way to tie the two together, where, your fortunes as a player is a byproduct of the team fortunes. I think a video is a very, very good way to be able to show guys that. And uh, it's a great tool for coaching for sure. I mean, it's telling them the why it's yeah. showing I was just going to say why. the same like, thing. And that's, it, that, that is exactly what motivates me as a coach now. Sorry to cut you hundred percent. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, what I've noticed from working with, you know, teenagers to, to pros for the last eight years is something that has really helped me. It, it's like you said, Toph, it's all in how you dress it up. And if you just, it's like when my mom would be like, you know, you're in timeout. And I'd be like, why? Because I said so. Well, because I said so doesn't, doesn't tell me what I did wrong or why I'm not learning. If you say, because I told you not to touch that thing because it's hot and then you touched it. You're an idiot. That's why. Don't touch it. You won't sit in timeout. Well, now I'm like, okay, if I don't touch that, I don't go to timeout. Boom. I won't touch it anymore. You know, it's it, it, tell these spoken, players. Spoken, oh. hey, Brant, spoken like a guy who doesn't have kids right now. Like, it's that easy, right? <laughs> Freaking guy. Right. <laughs> Why don't you come over here and hang out with my two-year-old and let's yeah. see how uh, you. Yeah, uh, she's two. I'm going to wait, wait, wait till, she, you know wait till she turns 11. Wait till she turns 11. You think she's got all the answers now? Holy smokes. <laughs> 
Oh, it's true though. Brandon, and I'm sorry, sure go someone ahead. with a 16 year old will say the same thing. Oh but, yeah. Um, no, I, I, the, the why is everything, right? The why is everything. And back to what you said, Topher, it's a simple concept. Show them exactly what the result is. If you really want to challenge as a coach, I think every coach, by the way, should go coach the youngest kids possible because I think it presents a totally different challenge. Um, but you, you want to understand having to define something. Go coach younger girls, female athletes, because they're so interested in the why. I walk in the locker room with my daughter's team, and it, whether it's after practice or after a game, it's a press conference. It's a press conference. Coach, what, what do, what to, on Saturday we're playing that team? That, that, is that the same team? Uh, yes, next question. And it, it's rapid-fire <laughs> questions. They want to know. They want to know everything. The boys, it's just like, stop hitting each other with sticks. Pay attention. <laughs> Two seconds. All we do is we don't line up here. We just, I just need to tell you what the game is. We're going to play the Gretzky game. Go. Right? And, and they, the, the boys are just like, you know, they're wild animals. The girls will stop you in the middle of a drill of a game and say, wait a second, what happens in this scenario? You know, they want to know answers. It's great. It's so challenging as a coach to be asked that. But it's really, for me, it's made me think about that in every way. So, like, you go back to what Adam Oates talked about um, when he talks about his whole philosophy in working with players, right? He's like, he talks about, if he's talking about retrieving pucks off the boards, right? Puck and bounce off a kick plate 50 different ways. Our job is to make sure you know all 50 and that you're able to handle all 50. Why? Well, at the end of the day, you get the puck out of your own end faster and more efficiently. Your team does as well if you go back and retrieve the puck better. That, that in turn allows your team to win more games, you win more games, you get more playoff bonus money, you do better in your career because you get more points as well, you make more money, the team's happy, you're happy. That's a pretty simple philosophy, isn't it? For a guy who's renowned as an unbelievable skills coach, but when you think about what he's doing, that's the essence of it. And I don't understand why we look at it any other way with kids, younger kids, who will never play in the NHL, by the way. But it's the why. And, and letting them understand the philosophy behind it and not overcomplicating things. That's 100% of it. Well, let me ask you this because I, I actually like I actually feel like there's a lot of coaches that overcomplicate things because of video because you can watch every nook and cranny and every little thing going on in a game and you know like you can have hour long video sessions if you wanted to doing that stuff and I feel like a lot of people actually overcomplicate it instead of undercomplicating it and making it simple and specifically I wanted to ask you like because you're coaching youth hockey now and you, you opened the door to that uh, a couple minutes ago. Like, how can you best use technology, video, whatever it may be to help kids? And how can you find the best way to simplify it for them where they're actually going to retain the information and they're not going to tune you out, you know, three minutes? In, because meetings with kids, I mean, they can't be more than, what, five minutes long? <laughs> even uh, even way, at the yeah. pro levels, they <laughs> keep it to five, ten minutes. So, like, how can you best use technology, video, the stuff that you're really interested in and, and really steeped in to help them with their player development? Well, so, I mean, I, I know I have expensive toys uh, at my disposal, but, you know, you're right. We, we only have five minutes with these kids. Largely, again, I coach town hockey, right? I, don't, I can't tell parents, your kids need to be at the rink an hour and a half before the game, right? That's just not our way. And so then the constraints are even greater. When do I present it? Sometimes I'll, I'll put a video together and I'll send it out to the parents so that they can show them at home. Um, but at the rink, you know, if you got five minutes before the game, you, you just, you just try to throw a couple things together that are like, Hey, you know, this is what we did really well last game. We've got to keep it up or put a couple things up there and then ask them what they see, you know? And, and for us, 
So if you go back to coaching mites with us last year in the half ice game, we had three philosophies. One, and, and, and they all kind of connect to each other, but number one always is get there first. You've got to win races, right? And it's a simple philosophy, and all of these are kind of open-ended because as they grow, the philosophies are still going to apply, but there's different interpretations on it, right? Get there first is one. Two, be an option. Once your teammate has the puck, where are you? Can they get you the puck? And then three is get back on the right side of the puck. And at the earliest age levels, that just means we go up with four at a half-ice game, and we come back with four. And in the full-ice game, we go up with five, and we come back with five. That last one certainly open to interpretation because you can go all the way up to the NHL. Should you be back-checking hard with all five players? I don't – I mean, you can say you can, but, man, people are really finding the soft-ice well inside the blue line these days, aren't they? What happens if you don't back-check hard with all five players and you actually play more of a man-on-man with the last guy so that he can peel off – for a quick up as well, right? So anyway, that's open for interpretation. So the video would generally start to come off of things like that, right? Where like you put up a clip on the screen and you show the players not pursuing the puck and you can say, what's wrong with this picture? And the kids will go, we didn't get there first or we're moving really slow, you know, depending on what level you're coaching. And isn't that success if they can already see something from the video that they didn't notice in the game? Yeah. That's the simple way of doing it. But it doesn't just break down to video. It's the message you're trying to get across to your players anyway. You know, I mean, like, at the half-ice level, that is literally the extent of our game philosophy, right, as mites. That's, that's what we tell the kids. We don't own a whiteboard. We didn't bring a whiteboard onto the bench once. And, and by the way, if you are, uh, turn it in. You should, you should not be doing that. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the beautiful thing of the half-ice game is allowing these kids to explore it themselves and fail and get out of position and bunch up. And, and it's how you teach off of that, right? And, you know, as they grow, you can add some more things. But you shouldn't really be going crazy with that stuff to begin with. So the video aligns with that. What is the simplistic things you're trying to teach the younger kids? And, and what are they? And inside of that, can you get to the point where you put video up and they can pick it out? They can determine it, right? Uh, David Reese, my, my friend here, coaches at Brooks, he tweeted out something yesterday about watching games with children and, and, and asking them what they see. And if you can get to the point where, you know, my reply to him was, it's great if you're not like, did you see that? Watch what that guy's doing. Let them tell you what they're seeing. Lead the witness a little bit. Ask good questions. But with video with kids, if you can get them to the point where they're picking stuff up on their own, that's already a success. A long-winded answer as usual, but that's, that's my sort of philosophy with it. I like that. I like that a lot. Let me ask you a hard question, especially since you work with a digital, or, you know, a company that does this. How young... Is it too young to do video or, or is there an age that's too young or, or what level, you know, I mean, obviously this is a super hard question and it's a subjective one, but uh, that's why we had you on. <laughs> it's, not, it's not hard. I mean, I think at the youngest age level, you just got to be positive when you show them stuff, right? I mean, the corrective measure, you said 70, 30 before, yeah, I mean, it's got to be like 95, five or 90, 10. Right. Yeah, that was you an know, NHL wow, player look what saying you did that. Here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, he's hoping that that's what it is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and and like with the kids, it's like if you can practice the game transfer, right? I mean, I guess the question is if if I don't spend a lot of time talking about structure and positioning as a youth hockey coach, where do we spend our time? We talk a ton about battling. We talk a ton about inside shoulder position, stick presence, right? And if we work on something in a station. Um, and then in practice, 
that player uses that. Isn't that, and, and not only uses it, but in a skillful manner, which skillful implies successfully apply the technique. Isn't that important to show that to them? So at that age level, right, I mean, like, so the, the funny story from our my team last year was my son scored the game winner in the championship game, whatever. They did the three Yeah, right, whatever. Yeah, you, you, had that, you had that lined up to come on our podcast and I did, say that. No, I did. <laughs> no, 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 just I did. No, the, the thing I was most proud about him with was he caught a kid on a back check, right? And not only did he catch the kid on the back check earlier in the game, but he sat on the forehand side, right? He waited for the kid to pull the puck back. And he lifted the stick and stole the puck clean off the stick, right? Like that's, that's, and again, it was my son, big deal. I'm more saying it because it was a player that had practiced a game transfer, right? You that's hear that college coaches? That was Berglund, yeah. number 62. Yeah. He's eight uh, years right. old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's, yeah, well, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> college coaches or just maybe college admission would be great. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's at this point, like I'm bringing it up as a way of saying that's the stuff you look for as a coach to show the players, right? Like, hey, we talked about this in practice. It's so awesome that you listened and you were able to do it. Now you know why we worked on it, right? Going back to the why. And that happens all the time. That goal before that I mentioned, we did all three things on that goal. Kid raced down the ice, stole a puck from an opponent. All three other players opened up as an option. And then somebody, when the puck went back to my son, backed him up and actually got on the right side of the puck and backed him up just in case it got taken off his stick. And that, like, to me, I don't think our season could have ended in a better way. That was the thing we worked on all year. So, of course, I'm going to turn around and show that to the players and be like, guys, that's outstanding. As a coach, that's what you need as a win. You need to see that practice to game transfer. So if you see that, that's what you want to reward the players with, right? You want to show them the things that they're doing well. And I don't think there's an age limit on that. I think that can start real early. I mean, kid oh. gets her first assist. You've got to show her that, right? Like, hey, look how hard you've been working on keeping the puck flat when you pass it, and look what it got you outstanding that's the stuff you need to single that kid out you need to game ownership is everything and you go into these youth rinks and you hear the parents screaming and you hear the kid the coaches screaming and talking about why the kid's out of position and that's your game that's not their game that's not their game they want to be out there having fun with their friends they they want to try to score and and you know we've got to give the ownership back to the players if we expect them to be part of this system that we're putting in place at the at the upper levels or just in life in general they've got to have self ownership of their actions right they got to understand that this is their thing this is their game oh totally and uh, i'm even just like thinking back to like when we were kids like we didn't have access to all this video at like hardly at no. all except for like when your parents brought like the huge camcorder in the stands <laughs> you know and uh you had to actually watch it on the camcorder on that little screen <laughs> and uh, you know what i'm yeah. talking about right but 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 oh, also yeah. i think yeah. about like as a kid when i was that age if i you know scored a goal or had an assist or whatever like i would rewind that freaking camcorder thing all day long to to watch the goal and to you know to watch the the plays and stuff and um i just think it kids today too are like such visual learners so if you can show them those positive clips like I think not only will it make them better but it will also help them to grow their passion for the game because they're going to have you know they're going to have value into what they're doing and they're going to think they're good at something and that's really good for their self-confidence not just as a hockey player but as a kid and it's about like what we talk about on this podcast all the time it's not just about becoming better hockey players about becoming better human beings and um, you know that 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 positivity in the video clips can be a huge piece to that that. Well, I, I, I've talked about it where I, my last, 
So what did I play? I played Italy my first year in Europe. So I played seven years in Europe. And after my first year, my agent made a highlight tape for me. Uh, he, you know, he was sending it to teams in higher leagues, like, hey, this is my client, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hey, I want that video. And every year he would make me these of my goals, some hits. Probably didn't have too many assists because my vision wasn't great. But, you know, we'd throw some of those in there too. And I started watching these videos before every game. And it, like you just said, Tof, it gives you confidence. It's like, yes, you're just seeing yourself score over and over and over again. And you remember that feeling. And, you know, I believe in the secret. I believe in the law of attraction. Just always thinking about it, always seeing it. It puts you in a good mind space to put you. It, it immediately gives you confidence. Like, yes, I can do this. I've done it, you know, hundreds of times. You're watching yourself before the game. And then you're also seeing, all right, look, you know, for me, like, I, you know, I'd score mostly the same way. I'm sure most players are the same, whether you got a great shot and you're great at shooting in stride or you're somebody who stands in front and bangs home a lot of rebounds so you're just seeing that over and over and you're like oh yeah that's what i need to do to be successful so that was massive for me it helped me so much just watching that over and over and over again so you know if you're a coach out there obviously this is going to take time but i mean if you can make you know a, a clip of, of a guy in scoring a bunch of goals or a couple clips send it to their phone then they can watch it on their phone before they play one of my nhl guys this year i met messages agents and I said hey I would love for you to make a clip no longer than one minute of a bunch of this guy's goals you know he had a little bit of maybe a confidence problem where he'd have a bad game and he'd kind of lose his confidence and I'm like I think that this is something I did that helped me big time I think it could help him why don't you do that and he put together the nastiest like minute and a half video with like obviously he has more tools to his to, to his uh, at his disposal um, and it was sick it had like music it was like goals it had images and all this stuff it was awesome and the guy absolutely loved it and if you watch that before every game it's going to help you sure i think and i mean i think uh, for sure and again going back to the medium of communication that we have and the way that these kids receive information now we're, the temptation is always to say that the, the next generation is dumber right <laughs> um and and it's your fault you know <laughs> yeah exactly well and and i think you know Getting them something that is motivational is outstanding, but just the way that we communicate to these kids, we think that they're all lost. And I'm, I'm speaking a little ahead of the, the ages I coach, but like you know, they're all lost in their phones. They're all they, their attention span is terrible. But you know that I mean, this is a fact, right? It was uh, James Flynn, I think his name was, and this is from I read this in uh, Range, the David Epstein book. Every generation, so every decade, people are three IQ points smarter than the previous decade, meaning wow. kids, when they were tested. That started back in World War I. 30 different countries they tested this in. Interesting. Okay. So Even the U.S.? So, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I know, and it's kind of hard to believe, right? But So if that's true, what's the issue? Because you hear all these people saying, like, oh, kids, are just, they're just not, they don't pay attention, and they're not, they're bored. They're bored. Right. That's really the case. They're all they're probably so much smarter than uh, previous generations at this point that boredom is much easier for them to to get lost in. And, and that's where we have to continue to change, um, uh, change the way that we reach players, because they're we live in an age where information is like, you know, two steps away at all times. It's very hard to disconnect and something comes in your head and then it's out of your head. Right. And that's, and you're on to the next thing. And it's, it's unlike anything probably in history, right? You think if, if evolution takes millions of years, which it does, right. For, for a species to evolve at all, 
But communication in the last hundred years and available information has increased exponentially. How are our brains adapting to that if evolution is impossible unless it's, a, unless it's over a million years? They're going crazy right? is what's happening. <laughs> exactly. Our brains can't handle it. That's what's going on, right? So if people are smarter now and, and kids are smarter now, we constantly have to figure out how we're satiating their attention and how we're getting their attention and, and distributing information to them in a way that's meaningful and something that they can, they can grasp and they want to they get a hold of, right? I mean, I, I, that's, so with us, with our teams, I loved what I saw at the half-ice age, right? I, I, loved, I loved seeing the kids take the ownership. They made mistakes. They bunched up. They spread out. They did all of it, right? Uh, they made mistakes. And then I would leave the rink and I would watch, I would watch the U10 team that I coached at a full ice level. Um, and this is the girls team. And, and they, the games were just, they were tough to watch. They were slow. A lot of standing around. Kids weren't pursuing it the same way. Parents were bananas. Coaches were bananas, right? Everybody's yelling and screaming. The intensity on the bench and in the stands is out of the, out of the, out of the park. And on the ice, it's kind of like, you know, two kids are standing at the blue line and everybody's safe and there's no, there's no risk taking. And I started thinking about positions in general. I'm like, what are, what are positions and why are we doing them? And, and, and Jamie Rice, who I'm a huge fan of, um, tweeted something out about positionless being the future. And it was Brad Stevens, a Celtics coach talking about, I was really only three positions in basketball anymore. Um, there's a shooter, there's a big, and then there's something else. I'm not really much of a basketball guy, but the, the, the idea of having all the different positions is going out the window. And if you go and look at like some of the goals from last year and even some from, from preseason this year, remember Pionk with the Rangers last year when he pulled the spinorama coming out from behind his own net in overtime, four on four. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. And Sam Gerrard this year, that spinorama he did and just completely snapped somebody's ankles with everybody watched that video clip. And I paused it for a second. I realized he was behind his own net. He was behind his own goal line when he did it. So he pulled the spinorama behind the goal line in his own end on the breakout, right? Brandon Carlos scored a shorthanded goal in the finals last year, right? Well, Brent, let me, let me, let me stop you real quick because this is a, it's a hot button topic for me because, you know, you hear USA hockey, you know, a lot of the guys, you know, at the ADM and, and a lot of the guys that have a lot of clout talk about positionless hockey all the time. And like, I know what they're talking about. And I just feel like there could be a perception if you just say positionless hockey, like people think you're, you're number one, you're nuts. And number two, like they, they just don't know what that means. So if you, if you can, I think it's important to clarify what that actually means rather than just like, Oh, let's just throw five players out there and let's just kind of see what happens. Because I feel like that's a way it gets perceived at times when it's not necessarily what it is. And I think we don't do a good enough job. Again, we talk about the why we don't do a good enough job of, of talking about why it's important and what it means. We just kind of say, yo, you have to play positionless hockey. So, so what is positionless hockey? Cause you did an awesome presentation about it and how can coaches kind of use that framework and frame of mind to, to teach their kids the game? Well, in a sarcastic way of explaining it, one door is the indoor and the other one's the outdoor, <laughs> right? And five kids come in, five kids go out and, and okay, that goes to your point and you'll correct me on that. And that's fine. Um, Generally, it works off of puck pursuit and puck positioning, okay? Um, the way we coach it, 
John Lonsbury talked to me about it a while ago, and I was asking him questions, and he talked about using animals to describe what kids should be doing on the forecheck. And I, and I like that. Um, I changed the animals around a little bit, and I kind of turned it into more of a full ice philosophy, because ultimately, if you diagram a forecheck and you flip it upside down, it's kind of the way you should come back into your own end as well, right? With reads and, and decisions as well incorporated in there. That might be a little different, but... Um, so we came up with these animal ideas, and again, I, John gave me some of the ideas, and uh, I changed the rest. But um, the first kid on the puck is a dog. What's a dog do when he pursues a puck? What's a dog do when he, when he gets into a fight? He chases an animal down, or he gets into a fight. He doesn't fight smart, right? His whole job is to get in and stop the puck, right? He's, his job is to separate the player from the puck, whereas the second kid coming in as a hawk, they've got to make a better read. They're not necessarily a great fighter, but they've got to be able to swoop in and grab the bunny, right? Or they've got to be able to go over to the other side of the ice, in which case they'd become the dog. Third kid coming into the zone, third player coming into the zone is a bloodhound. They've got to sniff, and they've got to be the loudest player on the ice, right? They're the loudest player on the ice. They've got to tell their teammates what they can't see. They've got to be their teammates' eyes, uh, and they've got to read the play better than anybody else. And the last two kids in either zone, those are the birds, They've got to be aware of what's going on. They've got to keep an eye on everything. They've got the best view of the play. Um, but ultimately, they're above everybody else. And that's where it starts in terms of the little bit of structure we give them. But outside of that, it is really just open the doors. How do we line up on face-offs? Well, let's do three across and two back for now, unless you guys have other ideas. What do you think? How should we line up on face-offs? Ask the players that, right? I just think that we are so big into reps, physical reps, getting kids to stick handle more, getting kids more puck touches. And then we get in the games and we give them these rigid rules in terms of where they should be on the ice. And we're completely limiting the amount of mental reps and exposure that they're getting to decision-making, to risk reward assessment, things like that. The games are, are devoid of that because we give them so much structure. I would rather them be out of position and then we can talk about it. I would rather them be out of position and a teammate says something to them, hey, cover high, be a bird, be a bird. And that's sort of how it unfolds from there. And what it does is it really gives you the opportunity to talk with players about, okay, in that situation, we only had one bird high, but did we need to? Where were all their players? Were they all down low? Okay, we're probably safe then, right? You know, and, and telling kids, what's the cue when you tell a defenseman in the offensive zone? Where is he supposed to stand? I'm not saying you, but... Uh, John, a coach, where does he tell the defenseman to stand? Yeah, stay at the blue line. Right. Okay. If you watch the squirt game, because the kids are all in the corner, right? And maybe if the other team is real rigid positionally, they got a kid's uh, station in the slot up high, the, the, uh, the defending team. Okay. What, is that kid going get to a, get, a, get a, a 60-foot pass out of the corner and, and rip a one-timer? My kid no. will. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so get down by the tops of the circles, right? Or even better, go slide in. If the kid's not looking at you, slide into the back door. Teach them to take risks and understand the rewards. And, and uh, you know, like I, I, it, I right? agree, So I agree with you, but I also think that there is some structure to the game that is important for kids to know. Like you talk about um, player development, a lot of player development and what they're talking about now is pattern recognition. There are certain patterns that happen throughout a game. Like it's not just chaos that's going on. So how would you, like for coaches that subscribe a little bit more to that model, a little bit less of the chaos, positionless, a little bit more to the structure, like 
you know, make a case for, you know, what they're talking about and how maybe it shouldn't be that way. Well, so uh, the hockey sense debate, right? It was funny um, that weekend in New York at the level four, um, Lou Vero and Rico Blasi talked the day before John Buchanan and I spoke. Um, and the first two, the more legendary of the two, certainly, um, made the comment that you can't teach hockey sense. John Buchanan got up the morning that we spoke and said, you can't teach hockey sense. Here's how I got up and said, I don't know if you can teach hockey sense. I'm not going to debate <laughs> those two guys from yesterday. Like I, I'm not, who am I? I'm the guy in the T-Rex costume that makes kids laugh. Um, but, but I will tell you, you can kill it. And I think it's easier for kids with hockey sense and the ability to read and assess situations to be given structure later on. But you can't do the opposite, right? If a kid has always been safe, they're always going to be safe. They're not going to understand when it's okay to jump up in the play. It's going to be harder to get that player to jump up in the play. It's going to be harder to teach, uh, you know, the thing that we typically see with the positionless stuff at first is if a kid thinks they're a bird and the puck changes sides of the ice, if they're the closest player of the puck, they're supposed to go get it, right? But they don't want to because they're, they're supposed to stay at the blue line. They still have that positional aspect in their brains because they've already played it. We've yet to have a group that has not had some positional play in their minds. But in that situation, I 100% want that player to pursue the puck. Yeah. If, if they know they can get to it, go for it. And then everybody else rotates and evolves around that. Making those reads and decisions will set them up better later on to be given more structured play by coaches at advanced levels. When I see players being told to play rigid positioning, it, they stand around. It's like telling young kids to pass the puck more. They don't get the concept that a pass doesn't just involve moving the puck. It, it involves receiving it. It involves looking. It involves getting your body in position, right? And I think you're putting the cart before the horse. The players aren't capable of thinking and reading situations yet because they haven't been able to play enough yet. It's much easier, you know, as a comparable, we were talking about offsides one day and how, um, you know, you see coaches in practice at the squirt level teaching kids offsides because heaven forbid you get an easy line change in your first squirt game as a coach, right? <laughs> um, right. <laughs> Jamie Rice said you can teach a donkey to stay onsides. Who cares about offsides? And I kind of feel the same way about structure and positioning. You can teach that stuff at a later age if you need to, but I would rather have players that are reading the situation now to understand, like, there's already three players on the puck there. I better back up a little bit because it's a three-on-two in our favor in the corner, but we don't need it to be a four-on-two because if that puck comes out, we're in trouble, right? Those reads don't happen when we tell these players we give them a cheat sheet and put a position on it. You stay here so we won't ever get exposed. I want the kids to get exposed. That's, I'm trying to make more out of the game for them. I get, we as, as coaches and, and town hockey coaches, we get 110 minutes a, w a week with these kids in practice. And then we get this thing called a game. I've got to use that game more effectively. And this is my way of doing it. I like that. Yeah. like that a lot. Yeah. That's interesting. There's certainly a happy medium and, and, uh, but you're so, you're so right. Like, especially in terms of allowing kids to use their instincts and creativity and, uh, and be able to make reads on their own and make mistakes and, and figure the game out. All the science and all the research is saying that that's how you develop hockey sense is, you know, it's almost like a trial and error thing. And if you're teaching kids that errors aren't good, especially at the youngest ages, they're not going to learn anything. They're just going to become robots that can't think on their own. So they're gonna yeah, play safe. yeah, they're going to play it 
safe and uh it just it makes it makes a lot of sense but i do think that the clarification of what it kind of means is extremely extremely important because if you just say go play positionless hockey and like even at the beginning what you talked about was just okay five guys go and just do your thing you know like that's I don't think you're going to learn much from that either. <laughs> well, no, and, and what happens when you do that is every one of your kids will end up outside the dots, right, in a battle, inevitably, because I've seen it with two teams now. And when you do that, you have, you, when that happens, you are now given the opportunity as a coach to start teaching about playing from the middle out and the value of staying in the middle of the ice. Not everybody but having a few players in the middle of the ice, right? So now you're taking it out of the traditional training of like, no, you're a left wing here. This is what you're supposed to do the whole shift to, are you the closest person with the puck? Then go get it. Are you the second closest person? Okay, can you, can you go help? Does the person, is the person going to win that battle for, for the team? And if they are, are you in a position where they can get you the puck? What are you doing when we get it? What are you doing if we don't get it? and then so on and so forth as they kind of count backwards from there. And you don't have to use animals when you can get older. You can use ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives. But or like, even if you're not comfortable is, with that too. Like I think even if you're not comfortable with, you know, positionless, like have kids play different positions. You know, like have forwards play D and have D play forwards. Like that can even, for the, you know, for the older generation that doesn't really subscribe to it, I mean, at least you can do that. So the kids are learning different things and watching different things and being able to make different reads in a game and get a better understanding of the macro of how hockey works instead of just micro, like, I need to do this in this situation because this is my position. (laughs) And that's a start of it for sure, you know, and I think as long as you're still enabling those players regardless of, like, I mean, I I bring up the NHL examples just because I think that's, everybody says, yeah, but that's the NHL. It's like, I got it. Well, that kid is going to be a pro at something that you're coaching right now. They could be an accountant. (laughs) They could be a a marketing specialist. They could be a CEO. They're going to be a pro at something. So don't discredit the kid you're working with right now in terms of those guys are pro hockey players. If you want to enable these kids to succeed in life, let alone sports, you have to expose them to decision-making and you have to expose them to failure. And I think I don't like the idea of saying, well, you're a defenseman, you shouldn't be joining the rush there because go watch the NHL, go watch college hockey. Players are up in the rush every time now. And if that's the case, is it really positioned hockey? Because for instance there, someone's covering back for that player, even though that's not their position, right? Yeah. Um, watching Andrew Ference was the first guy I can remember in Boston when he would lug, lug the puck up, gain the, the red line, he'd chip the puck in, and if everybody had uh, flaked off for a change, what would he do? He'd be the F1. Of course he would. That's the best thing we could possibly do there. He'd take, a, he'd take a, a, an aggressive approach to being the F1, and he'd finish the being the F1 by finishing his line change. That would allow everybody to get on the ice. It would stop the other team from quick, quick, quick up in the puck, and, and we'd complete the line change and stop them from doing anything with it. And most of the time, we'd end up with the, the pressure in the offensive zone. He was the first guy I noticed to do it. I'm sure he's not. But, um, and, and that still comes back to me today. You know, um, 
it, it's it's a different game now. Imagine where it's going to be twenty years from now. Yeah. Right? Well, you I even mean, look at like, it defensively too. I mean, how many forwards are going back to retrieve pucks? The way that the game is structured in the neutral zone defensively, like you have to right. you have to practice forwards going back to retrieve pucks. I mean, it's it's a huge part of the game, and yeah, I think if the forwards being up or sorry, defensemen being up, forwards being back, they got to kind of they got they got to be able to do it all for sure. Sure. I mean, I know everybody talks about Rasmus Dahlin and how he didn't really play defense until the year before he was drafted first overall, right? And no, it's because he's just developed his hockey skill set and he understands the responsibilities of being a defenseman, but he does not let that indicate or force what his game is going to be all about, right? He's, he's going to make decisions and carry the puck more and hang on to the puck more. And I think the positionless play encourages players to do things like that. You know, take, take the puck, go for it. I don't, I think I brought it up before, but I think kids are told too often to move the puck. I think you develop confidence with the puck at one age and it's young. (laughs) Right. And if you don't get it at that point, you're behind somebody else that, that, that has. And, and I think trying to expose kids to situations where they have to make a decision of, Am I making this play better if I pass it versus do I take the next 15 strides or 10 strides or 15 feet and assess the play from there? Can I position myself while they're positioning their self to make the pass a better play? You know, I think trying to create those situations more in games is, is really what it's all about, you know. Jeff, um, it's funny. But, so Jeff and I, I, we're on Skype right now, obviously, and we're kind of looking at each other. And we both have like one eye closed, our heads tilting up, trying to wrap our heads around. I, th- I feel like the same thing of what you just said about moving the puck. Can you, can you just uh, explain a little bit more what you mean about maybe not moving the puck so quickly at the younger age? Yeah, they whack at it. Like, there's no, there's no other way to, you, again, and that goes back, I think they get very tied in with, uh, with, the, with the whole position side of it. And, and when you play to win the next game, you're very concerned about turning the puck over, right? And therefore, you put the positions in place, and you spend every, every practice you have before the first game about making sure the kids know where to stand with positioning. And then that turns into, well, the kid is supposed to be there. My teammate is supposed to be on the half wall. I don't even have to look. I can just fire it to him. Well, maybe the kid had a brain fart, and he wasn't there. Now you're just throwing the puck away, right? When they, when they approach the puck, how are they pulling the puck off the wall? Are they just putting their hands together axe handle style and taking a swing at it because they know the player is supposed to be over there? Are they getting their hands separated and using their hips and looking, the, looking in the glass? I tell the kids all the time, I'll – Take a look in the glass if you're going, and, and look behind you. Look over your shoulder. Look in the glass. See where everybody is. Love Use that. Those little things to make a better play. Why aren't we teaching kids that at a young age? Stick isolation. Where's the guy's stick? Is he a righty or a lefty? Back into him on the right side if he's a left-handed player, because now you've got the whole right side of his body if you pin his stick. The Brad Marchand spinorama is completely about stick isolation. Everybody thinks it's chill boating. It's not. It's one of the slickest ways to isolate a stick possible. But anyway, back to your past totally. question. <laughs> I think, you know, the, the passing is something that coaches are so hell-bent on at the youngest age levels because you can pass a puck further than so, and faster than somebody can skate. Yeah, but that doesn't mean the kid reacting to the puck who's standing still has the skill set to calm down the bouncing puck, gather it, get his eyes up, look to make a play with it, and get his feet moving while someone else is coming at him. Yeah, I don't you know. I don't know. You know, 
I don't know what age you start thinking about when to tell them to hold on and when to pass. I, I truly don't know. I personally do not like coaching little kids because I don't like being around them and having to teach them the fundamentals. I like like 15 and above where I can teach them like next level thinking um, and ways to play chess versus playing checkers and things like that. So I can't even weigh in on that. I have no experience, no idea, but I do want to touch on something that we kind of talked about is positioning positionless quote unquote hockey and how people are starting to talk about where that's going and, and when to tell players to be okay in the D zone, you're the left winger. You got to go here. You're the right winger. You stand in the slot when the puck's on the left side, D man, you're in the corner center. You're behind him. D man, you're in front of the net. Super interesting. You know, we're always talking about reacting and teaching the kids to think and, and scan the ice and read. And, you know, I, I keep seeing a lot of people talking on Twitter and, and Instagram like, oh, positionless hockey's coming. Guys are going to be floating everywhere and it's going to be read and react. I think that's really cool. And I, I wonder if that that will be a better way to play. Not so much like completely positionless, but like, you know, you come back to the middle and then the first guy you're talking on the ice, you're going to the puck. Second guy you're supporting. Third guy you're supporting strong side wall. Fourth guy you're, you know, six feet away. Interesting topic. And I wonder what you guys think about that and if it would work and when you would employ that or how you would, you would, you would think about that. Toph, why don't you go first? Well, I think when winning becomes important, structure becomes important. And that's not it. Importanter. <laughs> importanter. Um, I agree. You know, I like, agree. because you, you can't, you have to have structure defensively to, to win hockey games. All right. When does winning become important? Let me ask that. I would say when probably, should winning become important? I think junior hockey. I think junior hockey. I think I junior would... hockey is when winning becomes important. And, uh, yeah, but, but even so, like going back to the position and stuff, even if you have structure defensively, that doesn't mean, you know, I mean, even go back to when we were playing, like if a defenseman was up in the rush, uh, a forward knew that they should stay back, you know, is that structure or is that positionless hockey? I don't know. It's kind of the same thing. Right. Um, right. so I think, yeah, I think to answer your question, I think structure defensively where to be and having positions, I think at the, uh, when it wins and winning is important in junior hockey, because that's when people's jobs are on the line. <laughs> All right, well, all right, let's ask this then, I'm, uh, and then we'll get to well, you. Well, I want to cool. hear what Brant says, though. All right, go ahead, Brant. Well, I mean, if you go back even further to when I was a kid, not to date myself, um, you know, <laughs> if a defenseman was rushing the puck at all, every adult in the building was screaming at them. That was well after the Bobby Orr era, I will add. Maybe people forgot about him, but it was well after the Bobby Orr era. I'm not that old. But, but like, yeah, I mean, the game, you can have structure – in the fundamentals, not necessarily in the positioning, right? And I think the more you expose players to awareness now, the better they are at it, right? I mean, yeah. and, and, and again, I think the goal in hockey is to have the puck more than the other team, right? And it's sort of like my golf game. I'm pretty good out of the woods. You know why? Because <laughs> you're in there a lot. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm lousy off the tee box. <laughs> I'm in there all the time, right? You get good at what you, what you spend time on. And um, the more time you spend on structure, and again, this, goes, this supports what you said, Topher, right? Like when the kids have that foundation, and I'm going on the idea of the positionless stuff is sort of the mental ADM, right? Upping the amount of mental touches, the decision-making, right? 
when you get to that level, if a coach goes, hey, in this situation, I want you to just do this, player probably goes, okay. But if you try to throw junior players now into a positionless system, how would they do? I think this generation would actually do okay, but it would remarkably look the same. You well, would get... Yeah. You would get the kids. Like in our situation, the first couple weeks, right, with uh, my son's squirt team this year, um, they basically lined up on the face-off that way, and it took a lot of movement of the puck zone to zone to actually get them to break that, right? And that's what I'm trying to work towards because I don't want the kids that start lined up back as the traditional defensive role on a face-off to feel like they have to stay there the whole shift. If they can get to a loose puck, I want them to go. I want them to go, and I want everybody else to read off of them. Right. Like that. So yeah. I think, I think like you, you're right in saying that. And I, again, I, I always, when I talk about this stuff, I coach town hockey and the parents are totally on board. Right. Um, I also back up whatever my crazy ideas are with all sorts of stuff I've read. And if they don't read it, they just get exhausted by looking at all the links and, and, you know, they basically have my back and, um, the kids are pretty good. You know what we do? We we're doing a pretty good job developing hockey players relatively and, uh, and they have fun and the kids own the game. Um, and, and that's ultimately what it's all about is giving them the ownership we've talked about the whole time here, right? We, you want the kids to feel like they have an impact and it's not just about the coach who's telling them where to stand. Yeah, well, that's a great way to kind of circle back everything for sure, and and even talking about what we talked about at the beginning. And uh, um, this has been an awesome conversation, Brent. I think uh, we hit a lot of good stuff um, at the higher levels, but also I think our listeners, uh, you know, a lot of them are youth hockey coaches and and parents, and I think this is really good information for them. And uh, I, I love what you said, and and you said it be- at the beginning, and you're saying it again now. Like, give the kids the ownership. I think that's so, so important, and it's a great message for, for everybody to hear. So uh, we could probably keep going for another four hours if we, <laughs> if we, if we really wanted to, but uh, we should probably, um, you know, uh, cut it short here. But before we do, um, if you can, just tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing now. You work with a company called Exos. I'm very steeped in it, having worked at Cornell and used the video software system before. Um, so talk to us a little bit about Exos system and, and uh, kind of what it is and how teams use it. Yeah, well, first, just to cap off what you said there, I am of the opinion that youth sports have become an adult pastime, and that's what we got to stop. Totally. Right? When you're talking about your kid's team this weekend, don't say we're playing. Say they're playing. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs> so I, true. It's nails on a chalkboard. And I catch myself <laughs> as a coach all the time, I say it, and I don't mean to, but I think I have a little more involvement than a parent does. But I, I still don't like saying us or we. It's them. It's you guys when I talk to the players. What are you guys going to do? Hey, you're down by two goals. What are you going to do? You know? I love that. Anyway, um, like that, that summarizes it for me. And there's a lot of, we could go on for forever about this. And, but I'm equally as passionate about my profession as I am my, I guess, my hobby, um, to contradict myself a little bit. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was neat when I left the Bruins. I had an opportunity to come work at Exos uh, and kind of oversee what they were offering to the hockey market. And that's allowed me to continue being – somewhat of the Forrest Gump of hockey by being around a lot of cool stuff and a lot of cool people. Um, you know, I get to go spend three days with a team during training camp or talk with a college hockey head coach. Um, and it's just, it's outstanding. But what we do is we have video editing software, um, on the EXO side, uh, and I'll get to the catapult side in a second. Uh, we went, we basically have an editing platform that a majority of the hockey market, uh, pro and college, and even now 
coming more so into the junior market uh, uses uh, in North America. It's just it's a video capture system that allows you to tag things and add tons of data to it and do time on ice. And if you see the iPads on the bench in the NHL, um, that's us. I mean, the NHL has implemented those iPads fantastically, the software that the teams use, um, by and large is ours um there's a there's a statistics app as well but uh it's not us but the one that they review video with you know i mean seeing mark recce who played in boston when i was there um working with kessel and malkin the first playoffs that we launched this thing was mind-blowing right um like it was a very it was a, it was an odd moment because then you saw the players kind of taking taking it on themselves going back to our early discussion on how um, involved players are now and where their uh, desire for for feedback comes from right and it's it's it, they definitely want to see video and we didn't think we knew coaches would use the iPads on the bench we had no idea no idea that that players would take to it like they are we've had comments from coaches like there's not enough iPads out there and coaches do a good job of metering that uh, I was going to say that's a that's a our, slippery slope because that can be it is. something that can be a detriment too over coaching and over analyzing for sure no, it was funny. Um, uh, NHL video guy asked Mike Sullivan at our users conference after the playoffs that year. Um, you know, don't you feel like this is all a big distraction on the bench? Like, don't you think that this this whole thing's getting out of hand with video? And Sully, in all his uh, infinite but suave confidence, just said, <laughs> "No, no. If it was a problem, I would take care of it." It was. Just, and, and like his his response is kind of like I'm aware of what's going on. No, it was good. It wasn't dismissive at all. It was a great yeah. question. But he was like, No, I'm aware of what's going on on our bench. And if it was a problem, I'd take care of it. And I mean, I think they use it as much as anybody. Um, but so on top of that, we were purchased by a company called Catapult a couple of years ago. And Catapult is a uh, wearable device uh, based. I'll say that's their sort of that was our our strong suit. Um, Prior to the uh, Exos acquisition, Catapult uh, tracks movement of players with wearable devices and uh, arena setups and field setups. So you can see player position on the field or on the ice, but you can actually see really intricate um, things like uh, internal or sorry external player workload. Um, what's what is happening to the player's body during a practice? Right? How much workload is a player put in during a practice? Uh, you can get the heart rate from a heart rate monitor, and you can get the the external workload, so you know the soft tissue injury or soft tissue uh, implications and things like that, um, which is all great. But what it really does that's always really jumped out at me is when you plan a practice as a college hockey coach, Topher. Do you really know what you're doing to your players? Do you know what day is the best day to push your players to make sure that they're ready to play two games this weekend? Right? How does that vary when you only have one game this weekend? You're kind of working in the dark, right? You think this one's a bagger. You think this one's tough on the D. Are you really sure? Is it the same for every player? And that's what this the wearable technology that the catapult devices um, brings to the table. It, it's it's really amazing to see how coaches are starting to use that to plan their practices now. Yeah. Right. Where yeah. 
you know, it's uh, you guys have had a little bit. Of, Jeff, I know you spent some time looking at it down in Naples, but yeah, when over, you showed uh, me it, that stuff's that stuff's next well, level. We we actually we had that at Cornell, and uh, it, yep. it, is, it is interesting. And, and going back to our conference, like Paul Goodman talked about that too. How the the strength coach and the the hockey coaches have to be in sync with the workloads, and totally, how yeah. you know uh, maybe the the strength coach wants wants to do a huge workload on a Monday, and they get all the data back through your catapult system. And the coach says, oh, wow, like that was a that was a tough workout. Maybe we'll take it easy on their legs today, as opposed to maybe the, you know, the strength coach or the hockey coach even goes up to the strength coach on Wednesday and says, hey, you got to take it easy on them because I want to go hard on them and practice today type stuff. So that that data through the stuff that you're talking about, I mean, the sports science is nuts. I mean, it's not and not nuts in a bad way, nuts in a good way. Like it's it's amazing yeah. how you can use it to be more efficient as a coach or a strength coach or even as a player, knowing and, and we would actually use it sometimes with the heart rates like in terms of holding guys accountable in practice like hey this, Ugh, was, this, hate was, that. this was supposed to be <laughs> well and that's so that's that is kind of a bad perception of it right because because it, it is for accountability and and like i know teams that will put up uh the workloads for every practice and say hey here's how you did but you know matt price from uh the kings la kings said it to me best last year he goes this isn't about knowing when to take it easy on your players this is about knowing when you can push your players the most right and get the most out of them totally right? and also knowing like having a profile of a player because i mean some guys might their heart rate might might not get above I don't know what the numbers are 140 ever because they're just like a chill person. <laughs> whereas, yep. whereas that, other people are someone's a caffeine fiend. Like I am, yeah, right? And yeah. they have a ton of caffeine and their heart rate's always high, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I hated really, being the, micromanaged. We did that in yeah. Europe my last few years and I would literally just pop the thing off my chest. And I'm, uh, <laughs> and I would just be like, well, it, it was hard for me to, you know, we just did heart rate monitors, just straight up polar heart rate monitors. And, you know, sometimes they'd use it to be like, you're not working hard enough. Not to me, because I always worked my ass off. So I was like, I don't need this thing. I know I'm working as hard Clearly. as I can. Clearly. No, but like that, that was just me. I don't need to be micromanaged as a 10th no. year pro on my last year. So like, no. and a lot of guys were like, this is a joke. Like I, I literally physically could not breathe the same way when I would wear the chest strap. I, I felt like my breathing was restricted. So I hated wearing it. So if you're going to wow. use it as a punishment, I'm like, you're a joke. Like I'm working as hard as I can. Don't get on me. But like you said, if you use it for the right way and it's used as a positive, like it can only benefit your players both yeah. physically and mentally. Yeah. And that's the thing now it's really becoming the, the package you have in a player and knowing what they look like when they're healthy. Right. Um, our devices are, they go on the back, uh, between the shoulder blades. Um, and they can tell left side versus right side and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that was cool. So like injury recovery uh, and soft tissue injury prevention, um, pretty amazing in terms of what data is available from our devices. And, you know, when a player thinks they're ready to come back versus what's the, what's the actuality of their preparedness to return? Um, and, you know, can we push them hard yet? Uh, is that player ready to be pushed hard yet, given their injury? Are they skating with the same um, stride strength uh, w- w- that they do when they're healthy? Um, you know, and our company is full of people that are well versed on this stuff. I am a neophyte with it, but I think it's important to look at it from the coaching perspective. And I think, as three gentlemen that generally make fun of themselves a lot, and we certainly have over the last, I don't know how long it's been, but a while here on, on this uh, episode, right? We Hockey people are, are, are 
self-deprecating, and they they don't think of themselves as very smart, right? You ask a hockey coach, oh, I don't know, it's way too smart for me. So that's where sports science as a word, I think, falls short with coaches sometimes. They're like, oh, I don't know about any of that stuff. But when you start talking about performance and development, those are the two things that coaches care about. And that's sort of the way we're going with our company now that we're one, right? We're really focusing on what are the tools we have to develop players and get them to perform at their best. Uh, and that's the fusion of video and data. Um, Very cool. Being able to have coaches, you know, the new uh, editing platform we have, the one that everybody's sort of adapted to and uses is Thunder, which is a PC-based platform. The new platform we have is Vision, which is uh, which is Mac-based, uh, and it was really derived out of coaches' needs, not just hockey needs, but what do coaches need across sports. Um, and it really sort of started in a simplified manner, and now we're adding other tools in around it to to bring it up to a really elite product as well. But that's a great product for anybody that's looking to do video, um, you know, at any level. Um, and so it's it's neat to kind of offer both of those. And, and our, I think our goal is to is to really focus on performance and development with what we offer coaches. And I, I mean, that's knowledge is everything, right? I mean, it's how how are your practices impacting your players? What are you taking from that practice to show your players it can be impactful without overloading them? Right? I mean, that's that's coaching. You can going back to Topher's point about watching video. It's great to watch every NHL game and break down everything and know the ins and outs of every power play, right? But but how are you communicating with players? I think it was John Kessel who's who oversees uh, U.S. volleyball. Um, he tells a story about asking a, a coach one time what what sport. I hope I'm telling the story right. What sport he ends up or what sport he coaches. And the coach responds to my coach basketball. And John Kessel puts a basketball on the floor and he says, "Go ahead, coach it." Why would you coach people? You coach people, right? And that's universal. We all coach people. Coaching is how you relate and communicate with your players to improve them and improve their team and your team, right? That's what coaching is. Being smart and knowing everything about the game is not coaching. You can just be an expert if that's the case. If you can't teach it, you're not a coach. I like that. So, expert versus coach. Very nice. Yeah. It's a big it's a big difference, right? Coaching requires people skills. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, again, we we came back full circle there and uh, finishing it off with, uh, you know, important points that we talked about an hour ago. So, uh, but this, this is, this has been great, Brandon. This is, uh, you know, such great information. I mean, I'm so interested in, in the use of technology and, and how you can use it, uh, you know, to help benefit players because it can go one way or the other. And uh, just like you said, the way that, like, it's almost like knowledge isn't necessarily power. It's how you use that knowledge is the power. And and uh, I just love everything that you said with that stuff. I learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners certainly are going to, too. So we appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day to, to talk about what you're doing and uh, keep up the great work. Brant's a great follow on social media, too, on Twitter. So uh, always has a lot of good hockey stuff out there. So uh, follow him. And, uh, yeah, appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, it was an honor. You guys do do a great job. You're doing great things for the sport. Um I really mean that. It's uh, you guys have such a humble approach to it. Uh, you have some laughs, uh, but but everything is is great insight, and knowledge on your episodes, and uh, the hockey world owes you guys because you're doing some great stuff. Well, we Thanks, appreciate brother. that. It's nice, yeah. Yeah, we appreciate that. Well, I'm sure we'll see you in a rink at some point here soon. But safe travels with your EXO stuff, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right, thanks, thanks, Brent. Brent.